How y'all doing tonight? Yeah? Yeah, we just had a baptism. We just had somebody pass from death into life. That's amazing. That's awesome. So, yeah, I don't know. If that didn't get y'all amped, I don't know what will. Is everybody tired? Are y'all okay? Has it been a long week? It's Tuesday already, you know? Anyway, all right. So I'm really glad to be with you again. Um, I've missed y'all. I've I've missed San Angelo. Isn't that weird to hear somebody say? I really did. Yeah. No, it's it's great to be back. Y'all have good tacos. So praise Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. But uh, yeah, so if you have your Bibles, um, we're actually going to jump around a bit, but we can start in the book of Revelation. So open up to Revelation chapter 3. So I just said Revelation, right? And all the church kids just cringe. They're like, oh man, where are we going to go with this, right? Raise your hand if you're a little bit nervous. A little bit? Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. I'd be nervous too. I am nervous actually. Yeah, so Revelation is always a scary book to open to, you know? Uh, one of my favorite preachers, his name is uh, David Pawson. He says, um, Revelation is divisive because half the people can't get into it and the other half can't get out of it, you know? You've met those people that can't get out. You know what I'm saying, right? Anyway. Okay, so Revelation 3, 21 to 22. And if you don't have it open, I think we have it on the screen. Yep. To the one who is victorious... I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we need you to speak to us. God, will you give us wisdom to hear? Lord, give us the ears to hear what the Spirit's saying to us. God, I pray that you would help me communicate properly what you've put on my heart. And Holy Spirit, we give you the right and the authority to speak to us, to change our hearts and our minds as you see fit. God, we love you, and you're so good to us. Amen. Yeah. So, before we really dive into this, um, I want to I share a story with you. Is that okay? Yeah? Okay. So, for years and years and years, I worked in the restaurant industry. Right Before I became a full-time missionary, I managed a restaurant. And before I managed a restaurant, I was a waiter. Have any of y'all ever waited tables before? Have y'all... Man, it's a wild job, isn't it? It's crazy, right? And I felt like at the you know, waiting tables, I felt like sometimes people would come in just to make you feel like dirt. You know what I'm talking about? Have you ever been at a table with that person? Well, for whatever reason, they're just like, I'm going to make sure that waiter knows that I'm better than them. You know what I mean? Like, that's what it felt like sometimes. So the, the worst crowds, forgive me for saying this, but the worst crowds were always the Sunday morning crowds. You know what I mean? Sunday morning Oh, man. They were, they were always so grumpy. Like the, it's like the pastor in his benediction at the end was just like, all right, now go out and be mean to waiters. Amen. Like, what happened? Or maybe the pastor went too long and everybody's hangry, you know, so they walk into the restaurant and they're just angry because they're hungry and they want food, you know? Like they walk in and they're just like, me want ham, you know? I never understood it. I didn't understand it. So I worked at this one restaurant called Texas Roadhouse, right? I worked there for a couple years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, the rolls and the honey cinnamon butter. During my time of employment, I think I ate a million dollars worth of that. 
Because as a server, you could eat them for free. And so it was always like, guys, stop eating the rolls. We need them for the guests. And I'm like, you know, anyway. So I remember I was working there one Sunday, right? And man, okay, so the Sunday crowd's grumpy. And then also, for whatever reason, they're like, I only give God 10% of my money. You'll be lucky to get that, right? So they're grumpy and then they don't tip well. And so like my motivation's like way low this Sunday, right? My motivation's super low. And I know I, I, I'm a Christian, and I should be, like, honoring God with my work. But, man, I was just not feeling it that day. I don't know what was up, right? And then we, I get seated. The, the hostess tells me, hey, you got, a, you got a big table. You got a big top. Eight people at this table. And I'm like, oh, no. That means the food's going to take forever. And they're going to be just angry. They're going to come at me with forks and knives. It's like, anyway. Um, it's like Lord of the Rings, you know, with, like, he didn't need his legs. You know what I mean? You know that part. Anyway, um, so I'm, anyway, I'm not excited. So I show up to this table, and one of my pet peeves as a server was, I, just let me introduce myself, you know? Just, just let me introduce myself. I, I'm a human being. I know that in my function as a server, I act more like a golden retriever, where it's like, go fetch a Coke. Go fetch a Coke. You know? But, but just let me introduce myself as a person, Right? And so I, I greet this table, and there's eight people sitting around it. And I'll, for the rest of my life, I'll never forget this. The woman, there was a woman sitting like right here, right? There's one person than her. She was in the middle. And I remember walking up to the table, and I was like, hello, my name is Christopher. I'll be, and that's as far as I got before she goes, T. I, can I say my name at least? You know? And so like without missing a beat, I do a very mature thing. I say, hi, Miss T. My name is Christopher. I'll be your server. What would you like to drink? Right? Yeah. So you can imagine the look that I got, right? Just dagger eyes, you know? And then she did this thing where, like, she didn't, she wouldn't speak to me. You know, she talked at the table. She's like, iced tea. I'm like, okay, I'll get you an iced tea, Miss T, you know? And I go around the table. And there was something about the reaction of the rest of the table. Hey, welcome back. How do you feel? Colder? Yeah, give this woman a blanket. Anyway, um, so there's something about the rest of the table, the way they reacted, that I was like, I'm going to keep pushing the envelope, right? Right? Look, there's a reason why it took me 10 years to get my bachelor's degree, okay? Like, let's just, all right? Anyway, so I come back, and I, you know, drop the drinks and the bread off, and and then I'm taking everybody's order, right? And I'm writing down the order, and, uh, you know, my habit as a server was, uh, you know, I need to get things right. And, and so I would always write it down and then read it back to the other person, right? You know, like, I'll have a, you know, I'll have a steak medium rare with, with baked potato and, and green beans. Okay, steak medium rare, baked potato, you know. I go around the table, and I get to her, and then I skip her. Don't even ask her. I was like, okay, you? And then, right? And so she's, like, really mad now, right? And the rest of the table is trying not to laugh at her, Right? And then I go back to her. I'm like, okay, Miss T, what can I get you? Right? And she's like, I'll have a chicken fried steak with no gravy. And I said, chicken fried chicken with cream gravy? No, chicken fried steak, no gravy. Okay, I'm sorry, chicken fried steak with brown gravy. No, chicken fried steak with no gravy. I'm sorry, ma'am, you want a bowl of gravy? No! Right? And I'm like, I just... Ma'am, I'm just joking with you. I'm just playing with you. I'm sorry. I, I have it all down. I wrote it down correctly. She goes, are you going to read it back? And I was like, no. And then I walked away. Right? 
I was such a grown-up, right? So then the food comes out, you know, and I told my manager, I'm like, you may be getting a, an unkind word from this table, you know? She's like, no, don't do it. Anyway, so I bring, I bring out the food, and I set it around the corner where the table can't see it, right? And then I bring out everybody's food. I skip her and go to the last. And then I'm like, okay, Miss T, are you ready to see if I got it right? And she's just like <sighs> fuming mad. And by now, the rest of the table is laughing at her. I mean, they are just cracking up. I don't know what she had done to her friends, but her friends just sold her right up the river. I mean, like, they are just laughing at her, right? And I bring it around. I'm like, here's your chip rice steak, no gravy. You know, got it right. And that was it. That was about it, right? So they eat their food. She never speaks to me again, right? Everything goes great. And then when I come back to get my tip, I feel so validated. That table left me $80 for a tip. $80. That's like twice what I would have made on the shift alone, right? Dang. Man, I felt so good about myself. So super validated, right? So don't pick on your waiters because they can get back at you, right? So I'll come back to that in a moment. But first, I want to talk about the Bible, right? We're going to skip around a bit. We're going to talk about a theme that is in the Bible more than we're going to focus on one scripture. And I hope that's okay, right? So... The first thing that we need to realize about the Bible is that, I mean, mine's falling apart, but the Bible was written by nerds. Did you know that? The Bible was written by nerds. I mean, think about it. The last line of the last verse of Genesis, right? The space of time between that line and the first line of the first verse of Exodus was 400 years. That's how much time passed between those events, Right? So by the time Moses starts writing the history, the first five books of the Bible, it's already ancient history to him. Right? That's like us writing about something that happened 400 years before, right? Does that make sense? The tracking? Right? And by the time you start getting into the prophets, the, the Torah, the five books of Moses, are already ancient history to them. Right? And that was, that was what they were obsessed with. The writers of the books of the Bible were obsessed with the other books of the Bible, right? They are nerds. They were in love with it. They freaked out about it the same way I love and freak out about Lord of the Rings, right? Yeah, amen. You will always get an amen for me if you like Lord of the Rings. Okay. So I say that because if you notice a theme or a pattern or a phrase that is repeated in the Bible... I want you to know that it's on purpose. It's not a coincidence. It's not an accident. They're doing that on purpose. They're making these references to help you understand what they're trying to say. Does that make sense? The Bible is one cohesive narrative, one story, one thread woven through the history of mankind to help us find our way back to God. Y'all tracking? Now, even more so, the book of Revelation not revelations, and if you do that, stop. It's the book of Revelation, right? It's a special kind of book, right? Because, I mean, all my friends, like, back in college, when I was in Chi Alpha, right, all my friends that were, like, potheads and they got saved, they loved the book of Revelation, right? they just like, oh, man, there's, like, dragons and stuff, bro. It's crazy, right? <laughs> the book of Revelation is kind of a different book, 
right? Because it belongs to a genre of literature that we don't have anymore. It's called apocalyptic literature, okay? Also, in this genre are the books of Daniel, Ezekiel. You can make arguments for the books of Joel or Zechariah, right? Zechariah, the, the E.C. one, right? You can make arguments for these being apocalyptic literature. And, okay, so when we, when we hear apocalyptic, right, what do you think of? Doom, death. Think of like the movie 2012, remember that one? Yeah? It's like John Cusack driving a limo through an earthquake or something. I don't know what's going on, right? That's what, or, or almost any movie starring, starring The Rock is an apocalyptic. I was like, why is there a giant monkey destroying buildings? Anyway, um, but I will watch every one of his movies. I don't understand. They're not good, but I just feel like I have to watch them. Anyway, that's totally aside. But, but apocalyptic, right? That word apocalypse actually comes from Greek right? And a Greek word that means a revealing. That's why we call the book Revelation, because it's a revelation. It's a revealing. Does that make sense? And so apocalyptic literature uses symbols and imagery to help explain things that it's trying to reveal, okay? And because we're talking about biblical apocalyptic literature, remember the writer of Revelation, John, was a Bible nerd, right? In his day, if you were a young Jewish boy, you would memorize the Torah, if not the whole Tanakh, right? You would memorize the whole Old Testament. And so he was a nerd about this stuff. He knew this stuff. And so some of the imagery he uses, he uses in the same way that we use memes. I'm not kidding. They're meant to be memes, Right? You know, like when, you're, when you, your friend sends you a text message and you just have that, some of you, come on, admit it, you have some memes like preloaded, ready to go in your phone, don't you? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because it's just like, you have the one that's the perfect eye roll one, you know, you're like, ugh, you know? You know what I'm talking about? That's what he's trying to do here. Because those memes are so effective for us because they're backloaded with all these, all these kind of emotional and ideological information. And you can just throw that out there and it explains exactly how you feel with one image. That's what John does in the book of Revelation. And so, Revelation can be very confusing to us. It can be very scary to us if we don't know what he's referencing. It's like reading somebody's text conversation but not knowing what any of the memes are, right? Y'all tracking with me? All right. So, uh, in, I almost missed this. Thirdly, this is very important. When they make a reference, when the writers of the Bible make a reference to the Bible itself, there's this interpretive law you have to use, okay? I'm going to save y'all a lot of money on Bible college and seminary because I know all of y'all wanted to go there, Right? Are you ready? This is going to save you a lot of money in theological training. So write it down. Okay, it's called the law of first mention. The law of first mention. The first way that something is mentioned in the Bible is the way you're supposed to interpret it for the rest of the Bible. Does that make sense? So the first time that you see a fig tree mentioned in the Bible, it's Adam and Eve trying to cover their nakedness, right? So from then on, anytime you see a fig mentioned or referenced, 
That's what it's talking about. It's trying, to, it's trying to make you remember, oh, this is man's futile attempt to cover themselves after their sin, right? So then you have Jesus in front of the temple, and he curses a fig tree. He's like, away with your futile attempts to cover yourself. Does that make sense? See how much more meaningful that act is? Whereas if you just look at it alone, you're like, why did Jesus want a tree dead? I thought we were supposed to be green, you know? Y'all tracking? Yeah, Okay. I know this is a lot of front-end information, but we got to lay some groundwork, okay? Lastly, the book of Revelation is less about how things will be and more about the nature of things that are, right? It is less about how things will be and more about the nature of things that are. So we want to think of Revelation in terms of, a, of binoculars, It helps things that are far away seem closer. But really what it is more like is a backstage tour of a play, right? Paul writes, he says, that our battle is not against flesh and bone, but against powers and principalities. That's what he's talking about. And Revelation is a book that reveals those powers and principalities that are against us as Christians. Do you understand? Yeah? Am I losing everybody? Is this too much? Okay. No one answered. Great. Perfect. That's what I like. Blank stares. So there's two principal memes in the book of Revelation that we're going to look at tonight, and we're going to unpack what those mean. Okay? And then from there, we'll see where Jesus takes us. The first one I want to talk about is the beast. The beast rises out of chaotic waters, which is supposed to make you think of God's spirit hovering over the waters before he created the world, before he, restored, before he brought order to the world. So the beast comes out of this chaos, and he's some kind of like super beast, right? He's like some kind of Frankenstein beast. You know, it looks like he's got like that, you know, different arms and body parts and heads and horns and stuff from other animals just kind of bolted together, right? He's some kind of mutant thing, Right? And this beast is a reference back to Daniel chapter 7, right? And so in order, remember the law first mentioned? To understand what John's trying to say, we have to go back to Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, we see a succession of four beasts, okay? And each one gets worse. And then finally, there's this one that, God, that John recalls in Revelation, the super beast, right? And John tells us what these Beast or uh, Daniel tells us what these beasts represent in his dream and in his vision. And these these beasts represent kingdoms and powers and authorities. Right, they represent king kingdoms, uh, powers, authority structures. Right, and if you think about it, it's a perfect image. As someone that studied history, I can tell you that all governments and authority structures act like beasts. They act like animals. They're only concerned about their own power. They're, con- they're only concerned about their own survival, right? They're only out for themselves. They're violent and they're short-sighted. They're just like animals. Does that make sense? The next major image is the prostitute, right? The prostitute. Can I say that in church? That was a joke, I'm sorry. It was terrible. 
First time that we see a prostitute mentioned in the Bible is Genesis 38. And it's kind of this weird, if, if you've read through the book of Genesis, you, you're like in the middle of Joseph's story, right? He's got like his technicolor dream coat and all that stuff. And he's like, you know, ah, I'm going to Egypt and yeah, I'm in Potiphar's house. And then the wife like tries to get him. And then all of a sudden like, boom, interrupted right in the middle with this weird story of Joseph's brother Judah, right? And he has a son that gets married and that son dies. And so he tells his other son, hey, sleep with your brother's wife so that she can have a kid so your brother's line won't die. Awkward. Really awkward. But hey, that was like, I mean, fertility drugs back then. You know, they didn't have what we had. So that's how they handled it, right? And there's like this odd succession of brothers not fulfilling their duty and dying. Like God striking them down. Right? And then finally, Tamar, the wife, dresses up like a prostitute. This is the first image of a prostitute we see. She dresses up like a prostitute and then tempts Judah to sleep with her so that she will have a child. Right? And so John's pulling that image out of Genesis and he's putting it in Revelation because he wants you to remember and think about that situation, a usurping of God's original design. There's a tempting, an alluring to pull the righteous one, Judah, away from what God had called him to. See what I'm saying? And I don't think it's any accident that the culture, the prostitute, rides upon the beast in Revelation. The culture is brought by the kingdom, by the powers, right? It's also worth noting that, like Ravi Zacharias says it, he says, whenever someone removes God from their life, they lose you know, that meaning, that purpose. They lose that meaningfulness, and that purpose in their life, and so they begin to search for it, and they usually wind up in two places. They look for meaning and purpose in either power or meaning and purpose in pleasure. The beast or the prostitute. When you remove God from your life, that's what you get. All right, so then we travel through Revelation, and we see the most common phrase in the book of Revelation is the phrase overcome. Jesus says over and over, to he that overcomes, to he that overcomes, to he that overcomes. It's the most common phrase in the book. But how are we supposed to overcome these giant, mutant-looking animal creatures that are attacking the saints and attacking the church? Right? Well, God gives us insight. And I think it starts in Revelation chapter 5. So we have the scene, John's having his vision, and he's, he sees a scroll handed down from the throne of God, and the scroll has seven seals, and no one is worthy to open it. And so he weeps. He weeps. And then an angel says to him, don't worry, the lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy to open it. Isn't that good news? The lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy to open it. And then the angel says, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And John turns around, and what does he see? A lamb that has been slain. See, our God, our king, he's not a lion. He's a lamb. Isn't that incredible? See, to me, that's, that's really meaningful. Because you think about it, at the end of your life, some people, they'll bravely stand in front of a lion. You know, some people will say, well, of course you were going to beat me, but I stood my ground. You know? And they'll face a lion bravely. But what do you say to a lamb? What do you say on judgment day? 
When you're like, I didn't listen to you, you lamb. What is a lamb going to do to you? Especially one that looks like it's dead. You know, lamb don't even, lambs, they don't even have teeth. They can't even bite you. Right? What's it going to do? Cuddle you? You know? That's because God is innocent. God is innocent. He's never done anything wrong to you. Right? So in Daniel 7, when we first see the beast, there's something I didn't tell you about that dream. In that dream, the beast is trampling upon this figure that Daniel sees. And he doesn't understand who that person is. And so he describes him as one like the Son of Man. And this beast is trampling upon this one like the Son of Man. And then Daniel looks up into heavens and he sees God's throne. But on the right of God's throne, on the right side of God's throne, is another throne that's empty. That no one's worthy of. And so this beast is trampling on the Son of Man. And then the beast is destroyed. And then the Son of Man gets up and is taken up on the clouds and sits on that throne that was empty. Right? So in Mark chapter 14, Jesus is before the Sanhedrin. Right? He's before the council of the high priests. And it says, but Jesus remained silent. This is verse 61. But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is referencing Daniel 7. He wants you to watch something. He's trying to get your attention. He's trying to give you a clue as to what he's about to do. Jesus, standing there, saw the process he was about to go through. The flogging, the beatings, the mockery, the shame, the crucifixion. He saw that all as his kingly coronation. Because in Daniel 7, the beast tramples upon the Son of Man, breaks the Son of Man. The powers, the authorities, the structures in this world, the culture, trample upon the Son of Man and break him. But in that he becomes worthy to attain the throne. Do you understand that? How much of the rhetoric, how much of your thoughts, how much of the way that you frame your life as a Christian against the rest of the world do you see as a combat, as battle, as a culture war that you have to win? But it's not that. That's not what God does. God doesn't fight to win because God is a lamb that was slain. Do you understand? Do you see how that fits into the whole gospel? All of the Bible is based around this idea that God suffers to make the world whole. This has always been his method. He lets evil do its worst to him and it breaks upon the rock of his grace and forgiveness. In Romans, Paul says that through the spirit of holiness, Jesus was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. For Paul, the fact that Jesus suffered and was broken is what makes him worthy to be appointed the Son of God. Do you understand? So Jesus was proven by his suffering and resurrection to be the Son of God. He allowed himself to be crushed to make us all whole. All the evil, all the wickedness, the cosmic battle that's going on behind the flesh and bones that we see, 
the powers, the principalities, all of it was swallowed up in the chasm of his forgiveness. He said, give me your best shot. And then he was left standing. We also know in, from the book of Revelation that the beast tramples on the saints as well. That's you and me. See, we are called to be like Jesus. So that means that we too are to suffer like Jesus. So when Jesus says to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, he's talking to those of us that suffer so that others can be made whole. How much are you willing to pay? How much are you willing to go through to see someone else meet Jesus? See, this is God's method of victory over evil. This is how he beats evil. It exhausts itself. It spends itself. And he forgives, and he forgives, and he forgives. And that's what he calls us to do. To swallow up evil in grace and forgiveness. To let wickedness and selfishness exhaust itself upon the righteous. To be trampled, and sometimes to be slain. To be a lamb, and never fight back. So to my shame... I responded to that woman on Sunday like a beast. I replied to her in kind. She wanted to treat me as less than human, so I turned around and I did it to her. It's not the way of Jesus. She wanted me to feel lower, so I mocked her and shamed her in front of her friends. And her friends enjoyed it. I liked it too. I repaid evil for evil. She tried to take my dignity, so I took hers. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you or take your shirt, hand over your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you. And do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus swallowed up your wickedness, and he broke himself to make all of us whole. How many of us are willing to follow his way? How many of us are willing to be mocked, scourged, made fun of, taken advantage of? How many of us are willing to go through all that? And repay it with forgiveness and kindness. Because that's the way of Jesus. That's what God has always done. 